Well, would you turn with me to Luke 14? Luke chapter 14. We'll begin in verse 26. This will just be our jumping off point this morning, kind of our beginning point. And as you're finding that text, you join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come humbly before you this morning to open the Bible and to say this is what it means is a lofty and a weighty thing to do. And so we would pray for your help this day. We pray for your guidance, for the Spirit of God to interpret spiritual things for us such that we might be accurate in our understanding of the Bible. It is so simple that a small child can find Christ in the pages of Scripture and so profound that a thousand lifetimes wouldn't be enough to plumb the depths of wisdom. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your guidance. We ask you, Lord, that you would hammer the nails of truth deeply into our hearts such that they never come loose and that we might live in a manner that's pleasing to you as a result. We pray in Christ's name, amen. One of my favorite Bible teachers early in my faith uh, growing up was Chuck Swindoll. So easy to listen to. As the heart of a shepherd, he's insightful and, and practical. His radio show, Insight for Living, is aptly titled. I used to listen to him every day. He's been a huge blessing to the Church of Jesus Christ. He's been a blessing to me in multiple ways. And as of today, he's still active in the ministry in his 80s. His radio broadcast is being heard on about uh, 2,000 radio stations at last count. But just this year, in one of his radio messages, Swindoll said, quote, How many people will step into eternity without Christ, spend hell there for the rest of their lives, realizing then that I made it difficult. I didn't take Christ at his word that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Basically, what he's saying is, is that people will miss eternity if they make salvation too difficult. This is not a recent position. This has been consistent with him his entire ministry. And I count him a dear brother. I count him a dear fellow servant in Christ. But we respectfully have to stand against this. It is utterly erroneous. His message is that to believe on the Lord Jesus is completely separate from things such as confession of sin, a desire to turn away from sin, a desire to be holy because God is holy, that those aren't in the same category. Or to put it another way, to become a Christian is devoid of the idea of being a Christian costing you anything. Those two are separate. Well, let's compare this to what Jesus said. Luke 14 Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war 
will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And here's the point. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Swindoll accurately represents what is often called the free grace movement or the easy believism movement. Now, the term easy believism isn't a derogatory term that those who disagree with them made up. It's a term they've embraced themselves. And so it is not a term of derision at all. It's one that they've embraced. Now, I'll explain that movement in detail more shortly. But I do have to say this up front. It is made up of those that I believe are sincere in their love for the Lord. They have a genuine desire to defend what they perceive as the truth. But they hold to some disturbing beliefs that are really quite difficult to support scripturally. And so my goal this week and next week is to really plow the soil of your heart to prepare us for John 15 and 16. And the theme of these messages will all be costly Christianity. Costly Christianity. We want to examine the the clear biblical precedent that salvation in Christ is fully by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that while salvation costs you nothing, being a Christian costs you everything. And those two live together. That to say, I'm a Christian, but to be in the faith makes 0% difference in your life. That's utterly foreign to what the Bible teaches about genuine saving faith. And so today and next week will be a little bit unusual. Uh, it's necessary for us to do some of this plowing of the mind, some, some necessary preparatory thinking before we begin walking verse by verse through John 15 and 16. So let me kind of give you the roadmap for today. First of all, we'll talk about how this relates to John 15 and 16. Second, we'll look at the hallmarks of biblical salvation in Christ. Uh, We'll do that briefly since that's what the whole series is anyway. Third, we want to look at the hallmarks of easy believism. And fourth, we'll look at the errors of easy believism. That's where we'll camp out most of the time. And then finally, we'll look at the dangers of easy believism. Now, I have to tell you, frankly, this is not my favorite thing to do. But it is part of the duty of shepherding to warn and to expose false teaching which, which deceives I promise you we will get to the joy of walking verse by verse through John 15 and 16, but we're going to kind of hold our breath and go underwater for a little while here. We will come up and breathe, I I promise. But we want to plant those seeds of John 15 and 16 into soil that's ready, into hearts that have been softened and made prepared. So first, how this topic relates to John 15 and 16. Turn with me to John chapter 15 and we'll begin to kind of Just get some introductory thoughts going in our mind. We'll just touch on a couple of key points here. Jesus is continuing what's often referred to as his farewell discourse or or upper room discourse. It's very likely that John 15 and 16 takes place while walking from the upper room in Jerusalem, heading toward the city gate and through which they would cross the Kidron Valley and come to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, And Jesus really sets the tone now for this part of his talk with his disciples using a metaphor, a word picture. He speaks of himself as the true vine and us as the branches. And as branches, we are to abide in the vine. John 15, verse 4. 
He says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In fact, Jesus says, Abide in me. Eleven times in this passage, we get abide in me, abide in me, abide in me over and over again. So the age-old question is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does that mean? Well, one author writes, quote, We simply incline our minds and widen our hearts so that his presence, power, and love can flow into our lives through the channels of our faith. That sounds really spiritual, but he didn't say anything. It's just like cotton candy covered with chocolate syrup and formed into meat. But there's no meat. That is the really, though, the common view, the, the preponderance of views of abiding in Christ is very similar to that. It takes an experiential and emotional view of abiding. This implies heavily, as does much of the teaching on John 15, that some Christians are abiding in Christ and others are not. Or maybe you can measure it on a, on a spectrum. That this is somehow measured by the quality of your quiet times with the Lord or the level of emotion you experience in your fellowship with God. And so the, the, the sermon goes something like this. You should be abiding in Christ. If you're not reading the word and if you're not in prayer and if you are being defeated in your own heart, then you're probably not abiding. But if you would start reading your Bible and praying and not being defeated in your heart, then you're now an abiding Christian. And that's not bad. Those are good exhortations, just probably from the wrong text. We certainly don't deny that our faith has tremendous experiential and emotional aspects. We, We don't deny that at all. But is that what Jesus was talking about? It's important to have the right application from the correct text. That view runs into big difficulties really fast if you just keep reading. Look with me at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I think we would have a hard time saying that the Christian who is not meeting the standard of abiding in Christ will be cut off, thrown away, and burned in the fires of judgment. And in the New Testament in particular, that burning fire always has the connotation of judgment, of the lost. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, abide in Greek literally means to remain. It means stay here. It's the same thing you would say to a little kid who's trying to run off. You would say, abide, stay here, don't move. The one who remains in Christ, the persevering saint, has a certain quality to him. Look at verse 5 to see this quality. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Christian doesn't bear fruit in order to abide. The Christian bears fruit because he is abiding, because he remains. The bearing of fruit is proof and confirmation of the true experience of regeneration and faith. Now, there's also a debate as to what it means to bear spiritual fruit. Some say this is obedience to the Lord. Some say it's new converts. Others say it's love or Christian character. I think that's an oversimplification to try to divide it down. It's more accurate to remember, verse 5, that the true believer bears much fruit. That that's the the whole purpose of the branch. And if we just did a quick survey of the next few verses, 
we would see that this encompasses everything that's the product of an effective walk with the Lord, particularly the product of an effective prayer life. This includes obedience and joy and love, saturation in the word, our gospel witness, everything that encompasses and embodies the submitted and faithful Christian life. That's what bearing fruit is. And so arguing, whether it's evangelism, or whether it's seeing new converts, or whether it's being in the Word, or whether it's being in prayer, that's a moot point. It's all of that. It's that you are different. That something is happening on the tree of your life, so to speak. In other words, your life as a branch is driven by the life who is the vine, who is Christ. These things become more and more natural to you. And as we read more deeply into John 15 and 16, we're going to see that abiding in Christ is costly. You can't get away from this. It's not costly in the sense of somehow earning salvation, which is freely given by God's grace, but it's costly in the sense that to follow after Christ means sacrifice, it means expense, it means suffering. As we read a moment ago, Jesus said, count the cost of following him. That's really the opposite of the gospel that's presented in most evangelical churches today. The gospel presented in evangelical churches today is walk 50 feet and check a card. The gospel that Jesus is presenting is stop and count the cost. And as we delve into these two chapters, we're going to see this cost. Let me just give you a list. The cost of fatherly discipline, the cost of committed perseverance, the cost of fruitful prayer, the cost of unconditional obedience, the cost of sacrificial love, the cost of gospel mission, hateful persecution, total rejection, gospel defense, scriptural loyalty, current sorrow, and heartbreaking shame. You might say, well, welcome to Grace Bible Church. That's discouraging. But that's the gospel. But just so we don't leave you hanging, the final message in this series will not deal with the cost of following Christ, but with the reward of following Christ. Because that's the whole point, is that yes, to follow him costs, but that's not the ultimate end. And so we would affirm with great confidence from Scripture that there is a cost to following Christ, and the cost is tremendous. The cost is comprehensive. Jesus already said, any one of you who does not renounce All that he has cannot be my disciple. There's no ambiguity on what the word all means. It's everything that you are. Well, let's talk now about the hallmarks of biblical salvation. Let's let's have a good foundation. We won't spend a lot of time on this because we'll be doing that over the next weeks. But this is often called lordship salvation. I prefer the term biblical salvation because lordship salvation somehow implies something negative. But it is called lordship salvation after the idea that to be truly saved, one must truly receive Christ as both Lord and Savior. So we'll use the terms biblical salvation and lordship salvation interchangeably. Let me just briefly give you seven affirmations of biblical salvation, the hallmarks of biblical salvation. First of all, And this isn't new to you if you've been at grace for any period of time. First of all, salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, not by works. Salvation is through faith alone, through grace alone, not by works. We fully affirm and we cherish Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We fully love Titus 3, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We adore and cherish and hold dear to our hearts, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We hang on to the promise of Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we cherish and we abide in and we hang on to and we grasp a hold of and we honor Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, not by works. And that is the pillar that we build the gospel upon. There's a second affirmation. Part of the gift of faith includes the gift of repentance. Part of the gift of faith includes the gift of repentance. Acts 11 verse 18 when they heard these things they fell silent and they glorified god saying then to the gentiles also god has listened to this word granted repentance that leads to life repentance is the changing of your mind about your own sin which results in the changing of behavior as well or as luke 3 verse 8 says bear fruit in keeping with repentance the third affirmation salvation is god's work and lasts forever salvation is god's work and lasts forever ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were made alive by god in christ jesus said in john 10 28 and 29 that no one can take salvation from you because you were in the very hand of god in christ 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8 says, quote, The Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we will stumble. Yes, we will fail. Yes, you will sin. Yes, you will wonder aloud to the Lord, why am I sinning again in this same way? You will be frustrated at your own lack of holiness. You will be disgusted at your own lack of, sin, lack of sinlessness. But you will persevere. Because anyone who turns away from Christ was never in Christ. You may fall and you may stumble, but your eyes will still stay on the cross. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. There's a fourth affirmation. Genuine faith will produce a changed life. Genuine faith does produce a changed life. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This isn't speaking of sinless perfection. We're still in our mortal bodies walking on a difficult, sinful world. But there is a definite observable change that should grow over time. In fact, the Apostle Paul speaks of this change in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is the doctrine of progressive sanctification. So genuine faith will produce a changed life. Here's a fifth affirmation. Salvation is a singular package. 
Salvation is a singular package. Genuine faith is not just a get-out-of-hell card. It encompasses not just the judicial parts of salvation, justification and adoption, but the transformative parts of salvation as well. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And so it's a, it's a singular package. You are justified. You are sanctified. It all goes together. We don't divide it up into pieces. There's a sixth affirmation of biblical salvation or lordship salvation, as you will. Genuine faith requires total surrender to Christ as Lord. Genuine faith requires total surrender to Christ as Lord. What does that mean? It doesn't mean uh, spray painting on a bridge or painting on your semi-truck, He is Lord. It means he is your Lord. It means you have submitted to your kurios, your master. Our surrender to the lordship and control of Christ isn't a subsequent part of salvation. That is salvation. That is salvation. Romans 10.9 says that the requirement for salvation is to formally, formally acknowledge that you surrender. That you surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not generally speaking, I believe intellectually that Jesus is Lord. It's that he is my Lord and I submit. Now, this surrender implies total loyalty, total obedience, based in great love for Christ as your Lord. And this is so simply put, in the previous chapter, John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't love Christ. One more affirmation, a seventh affirmation. An unwillingness to obey Christ indicates a false faith. An unwillingness to obey Christ indicates a false faith. First John 2, 4 Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I don't know how much clearer John could be. Titus 1, 15 and 16, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And what does Paul go on to say? They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work so these are the hallmarks of biblical salvation now by way of comparison let's walk through the hallmarks of easy believism easy believism three of the main proponents of this view have been zane hodges joseph dillo and robert bob wilkin Uh, bob wilkin is active right now zane hodges uh, went home to be with the lord about 11 years ago uh, but Bob Wilkin, very, very active today uh, in a, a ministry called Grace Evangelical Society, pushing this very, very hard. So let me go through the hallmarks of easy believism, and then we'll get to the, the errors, the difficulties with it. First of all, and I'll just give you four. First, faith is defined as being convinced that Jesus guarantees eternal life to all who believe. Faith is defined as being convinced that Jesus guarantees eternal life to all believe, that all who believe. That sounds pretty good. 
But if you delve deeper into what they really mean by that, what they mean is that faith is intellectual assent, intellectual agreement, which has, which has no connection to how you act. None whatsoever. That still doesn't sound all that bad. But then you get to a second hallmark. Faith does not include sorrow for sin, turning from sin, or submission to the Lordship of Christ. It doesn't include sorrow for sin, turning away from sin, or submission to the Lordship of Christ. That saving faith has no connection whatsoever to a changed life. There's no connection. And I'm not putting words in their mouth. You can find these quotes. Here's a third hallmark of easy believism. Assurance of salvation is based solely on looking back at a moment of conversion. That your assurance of salvation is based solely on looking back on the moment of conversion. That if your life hasn't changed at all, if you're disobeying Christ in every possible way, if you're living a fruitless life, you should still be assured of your salvation because at one time you believed. At one time you had a moment that you can count. I, I think that is ultimately cruel. That is so cruel. Because you are, as a human being, attempting to give assurance of salvation to another human being. That's impossible. Only God knows the heart. One more hallmark of easy believism. Obedience to Christ will not be manifested in every Christian's life. Obedience to Christ will not be manifested in every Christian's life. Thus, believers are divided into two categories, what they would call the fruitful believer and the unfruitful believer. They would say some are heirs and others are non-heirs. Some Christians are believers and some Christians stopped believing, but they're still Christians. They're just not believers. Some are overcomers. Some are non-overcomers from Revelation 2 and 3. Or, we could put it this way, some are good trees which bring forth good spiritual fruit and some are good trees which bring forth bad spiritual fruit. In other words, some Christians will live a completely carnal, self-centered life and you should still be assured of your salvation if that's what you're doing. And so obedience to Christ is not seen as a result of salvation but just the responsibility of the saved. In other words... You can be a Christian and it costs you nothing that that's possible. By the way, they make a false division. They say there are Christians and there are disciples. And those are two different things. The Christian is step one, being a disciple is step two. Okay, let's get to it. Let's look at the errors of easy believism. Again, we're just plowing the soil of our hearts here so that John 15 and 16 has really soft soil for us to plant the seeds of that word into These are not in order of importance. We want to be wise. We want to be wary. We want to camp out in joy on the biblical gospel. Again, I have to say, I believe that those who lead the way in this camp are sincere in their desire to represent what is right. I don't perceive any dark or wicked motives at all. They want as many people as possible to be in the kingdom. We want as many people as possible to be in the kingdom. But how we get there differs. So let's go through these, the errors. First of all, questionable hermeneutics. And if you can't spell hermeneutics, just write Bible study methods. It's the same thing. Questionable hermeneutics. Give you a couple of examples. First of all, they notoriously appeal to their favorite verses and tend to write 
and speak as if a particular verse is meant to carry the entire weight of all of soteriology, all of the study of salvation, just on that verse alone. And their favorite, of course, and we love this verse, is John 3.16, that whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. And they'll say, there's no other requirement here, it's just believe. But the fact that we must believe, which is true, that doesn't negate regeneration, That which, by the way, is is talked about in the same chapter, doesn't negate repentance. It doesn't negate spiritual truth. John 3.16 wasn't meant or designed by God to carry the entire weight of the gospel message. It is an important piece, but it doesn't carry the whole thing. The second problem, I'll take a little bit more time on this. They do major twists and turns to make clear scriptures fit their system. The Bible Knowledge Commentary which I love, we use, we we recommend it to our BTI students. Unfortunately, a few of the commentaries in there are written by Zane Hodges, including the commentary on 3 John. In 3 John, John condemns Diotrephes for acting wickedly in the church, and he gives several concrete examples. Immediately following in 3 John, verse 11, John says, Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now listen to what Hodges says about this. He says, quote, John was not questioning Diotrephes' salvation, just that his conduct showed blindness toward God. In other words, you can be blind toward God, be utterly wicked, and still be saved. And he maintains that the person who is not of God simply doesn't find, quote, the source of his actions in God. Seriously? All you have to do is do a quick glance through 1 John 3, 4, and 5. It shows that those who are of or from God are Christians. Those who have not seen God are of the devil, the evil one. And so according to Hodges, you can be of the devil and still be a Christian. That's just terrible hermeneutics. That's making your theological system fit the Bible, and we can't do that. Here's a second error we'll call inaccurate arguments. Inaccurate arguments. And if we were going to be a little less gracious, we would say intellectual dishonesty. But inaccurate arguments. But I won't say intellectual dishonesty. I'll just let you say that. And if you put that in your notes, I won't look. What is intellectual dishonesty slash inaccurate arguments? It's when somebody sets up a false opponent. You set up a false opponent and then you self-righteously argue against it so that you can further your own position. This is sometimes called a straw man argument. You're setting up a a fake argument that doesn't actually exist. It's incredibly rare to see easy believers and proponents actually engage honestly with the lordship salvation proponents. What they tend most often to do is to misrepresent lordship salvation and then arrogantly claim to stand for the biblical gospel. I will not claim to have to have scanned all the literature that's available on easy believism, but I couldn't find, and I've been looking for years, I couldn't find one easy believism proponent that quotes a lordship salvation proponent as actually representing the view that the easy believism proponents say that they do. Do you catch that? In other words, they're just making it up. I'll give you an example. Bob Wilkin, Grace Evangelical Society. I tried to write him an email, but you can't email him. I couldn't figure out how to do it. He writes, quote, 
Lordship salvation proclaims a faith plus works message. And that Lordship salvation position says, quote, faith in Christ is not enough to be born again. The problem is he never quotes anyone who actually says this. Who actually believes this. And you're hard pressed in these circles to find them citing anyone who says this. Their definition of Lordship salvation is their own invention. Again, Bob Wilkin defines Lordship salvation as follows. Quote, One must repent of all his sins and follow Christ until the time comes when God gives him his chance to give his life to Christ and be born again. I would defy Dr. Wilkin to find one Lordship salvation proponent who actually says that. I don't think there's one. Acts 11.18 says that repentance is granted, that it's a divine work enabled in the heart of the person being saved. 2 Timothy 2.25, repentance is granted leading to life. By the way, they throw the term legalism around continually. That's an extremely serious charge. Somebody comes up to me and says, you're a legalist. My response is, them's fighting words. Because that's an extremely serious thing to say. This is the Galatian heresy of expecting good works in order to be saved. That's not the position of lordship salvation, of biblical salvation, not at all. Here's a third error. Ignoring the doctrine of the new birth. Ignoring the doctrine of the new birth. Regeneration. Chuck Swindoll, in an appeal to the lost to come to Christ. And first of all, praise God that he's appealing to the lost to come to Christ. And we, we're thankful for that. First, uh, Philippians 1 tells us to be grateful if the gospel is preached in whatever context. But he says this, Why in the world don't you take it? Meaning the gospel. How many people will step into eternity without Christ in hell realizing that I made it difficult. I didn't take him at his word that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. I say that quote again that's cited in an article titled, quote, Chuck Swindoll says that people will miss eternity with Christ if they make salvation too difficult. So what you're saying is how well the lost person grasps the nuances of the gospel message will determine whether or not they get saved. That's a scary thought. Because 1 Corinthians 2 says that the the unspiritual person cannot perceive spiritual things. But Jesus said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is a work of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Who does the creating? God does. The old has passed away, the new has come. Salvation is clearly a work of God. What Swindoll basically said and is espoused by the Easy Believism movement, the Free Grace movement, is that if we preach a gospel of repentance, then we're making it too hard to go to heaven. First of all, I don't have the power to make it easy or hard to go to heaven. That's not in my power. 
Acts 13.48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I can't appoint anybody. I, I, I would never preach again if I thought that somebody was going to go to hell because I presented a gospel inaccurately. I would never stand up here. I don't have the power to make it hard or easy to be saved. Neither do you. But secondly, honestly, we ought to be happy to preach a message of repentance. You want to know why? Because that's the message that Jesus preached. Mark 1.14, repent and believe in the gospel. Regeneration is solely the work of God. It enables repentance. It enables faith. Now, how does this work? Repentance is to faith what electricity is to a light bulb. Electricity must be present for light to occur. Repentance isn't a so-called good work to earn salvation. Repentance is changing your mind about your sin. That's how the New Testament defines it. It's turning away from your sin. That's how the Old Testament defines it. And faith is changing your mind about Christ and turning toward him. This is not difficult. You are facing your sin and you turn away from it and turn toward Christ. How can you say, I turn to Christ, but I don't turn away from my sin? That makes no sense. But this isn't a, a temporal order. This isn't a time order. This is a logical order. What do I mean? When we say regeneration precedes faith, regeneration precedes repentance, that doesn't mean you, you don't say, well, I was regenerated on, on January 15th, and then uh, I repented on March 1st, and then I came to faith finally uh, April uh, 16th. We don't say that. It's not a time order. It's a logical order. In other words, the flow of electricity and the light coming on in the light bulb happen essentially at the same time. But we would never say that the electricity is there because of the light. We must always say that the light is there because of the electricity. And in the same way, repentance and the light of faith exist because of God's regenerating power. Here's another error. They explain away repentance. They explain away repentance. And the way they do that, the easy believism or free grace position says that repentance and faith are basically identical. It's the same thing. They both refer to intellectual assent and belief. Well, if that's the case, then Jesus is redundant because he said, repent and believe the gospel. If they're the same thing, he wouldn't have said that. Why did Jesus say that he came to call sinners to repentance? Luke 5. Why is the prodigal son of Luke 15 pictured as turning away from his sin as he received the renewed favor of his father? Why did Jesus tell the crowd in Luke 13, 5, unless they repent, they will perish? Why did he tell them that? Why does Luke 24, 46, and 47 tell us, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You cannot explain the way repentance. It is part and parcel with the gospel. Here's a fifth error. A disturbing belief in two types of Christians. 
a disturbing belief in two types of Christians. As I mentioned earlier, the, the easy believism camp divides believers into the fruitful and the unfruitful, even taking the liberty of saying that the fruitful are heirs of God and the fruitful are not, the unfruitful are not heirs of God. And this is, this is from them. This is not me making this up. These are quotes from these folks. They would divide Christians into two groups. Group one, those who inherit the kingdom, those who are called the overcomers, those who are called the partakers, those who reign with Christ, the spiritual ones, those who suffer with Christ, those who are joint heirs with Christ, and those who persevere in the faith. But they have a separate category of group two of Christians who do not inherit the kingdom, do not overcome, do not partake, do not reign with Christ. They're the carnal ones. They do not suffer with Christ. They're not joint heirs. They do not persevere in the faith. Or, can I put it this way? Some are good trees which bring forth good spiritual fruit, and some are good trees which bring forth bad spiritual fruit. You already know where we're going with this. Luke 6.43, Jesus said, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Of course, this doesn't mean that believers always live lives that please God, always abounding in massive good works. Saved people can live in a sad spiritual state of disobedience. But because you have the Spirit of God, because you have the work of God, the Word of God, there is conviction, there's discipline, there's certainly a battle happening in your life. Listen to this explanation of free grace. Quote, A truly saved person can totally abandon the faith, deny Christ, deny the gospel, even mock the Christian faith. A true believer can have a life that is characterized by and dominated by immorality, disobedience, and wickedness. That's not only inaccurate, that's crazy. That's, that, that makes no sense. In his book, The Gospel Under Siege, Zane Hodges denies the necessity of good works in the Christian's life He denies that they are the fruit of salvation or the outcome of saving faith. And he says that the Bible never teaches that the true Christian will persevere in good works. So then you have the the division of the faithful and the carnal Christian. But the Bible's position on you and on me is that of unity. That we're together. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's no division there. Romans six seventeen and 18, Thanks be to God but you, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. There's a unity amongst us. Here's a sixth error, and this is the one that I think baffles me more than any of them, and that is the artificial division of Christ. The artificial division of Christ. The easy believism camp says that to be saved, you merely must acknowledge Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord, as your kurios, as your master. Honestly, I don't think Jesus would appreciate being divvied up that way, that he's your Savior first and then potentially later your Lord. Scripture never says that. The angels in the field at night didn't announce to the shepherds in Luke 2, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ, potentially the Lord. Didn't say that. 
Paul didn't say in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior who might be your Lord, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, seven times in the New Testament, Jesus is called our Lord and Savior. Lord comes first. One more error. We'll call this one the false condemnation of true believers. The false condemnation of true believers. I have attempted to be very careful to make sure that we understand that those who believe in the easy believism camp, we wouldn't say that as a gospelless position. We would say it's an erroneous one. But what's so concerning to me about the free grace movement is that they've labeled lordship salvation not just as a doctrinal disagreement, they've labeled it as heresy. In other words, that to believe the lordship or the biblical salvation position means you are deceived by a message that will send you to hell. That's extremely serious. As a matter of fact, one pastor, ironically, of a Bible church, which they changed the name of their church, he preached a 13-week series called, quote, The Heresy of Lordship Salvation. He based his entire series on the assertion that lordship salvation says that, this is his quote, Faith alone in Jesus Christ is not enough to save. It is a belief that one must commit himself to a certain level of good works or obedience or discipleship to really be saved. The name of this grace-polluting heresy today is called Lordship Salvation. And he picks on one particular proponent of Lordship Salvation. He calls him names in this first sermon, quote, confused, a rambler, a poor exegete, a junior-level theologian, naive, inaccurate, on the rampage, arrogant, and ignorant. This confused, rambling, naive, junior-level theologian he was referring to, of course, is Dr. John MacArthur, famous for his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, over which, by, by the way, Chuck Swindoll broke fellowship with Dr. MacArthur. It's very interesting that in his entire sermon, this pastor didn't actually present MacArthur's position at all. He simply called them names. He just called them names and accused them of spreading heresy. And everyone he quoted to give definitions of lordship salvation was a free grace proponent. That's intellectual dishonesty. This pastor then went on to preach 13 messages on 13 problems with lordship salvation and every single so-called problem was a total misrepresentation of the view and could be easily proven as such. Can a proponent of easy believism be saved? Of course, because salvation isn't of men. Salvation is of God. Salvation is by faith alone, given by grace alone, not affected by human effort, but affected by the will of God. But Bob Wilkin of the Free Grace Movement, Grace Evangelical Society, says, quote, Is Lordship Salvation a saving message? No, it is not. He just called you a heretic for believing that you should be obedient to Christ as a result of salvation. Well, one last thing, and I think you can probably see this already. Let me just quickly go through the dangers of easy believism. This is pretty apparent. Just three of them that I'll list. The dangers of easy believism. Number one, it makes no call to count the cost of following Christ. It makes no call. It's it's an impotent gospel. It just says, believe these facts about Jesus, have nothing else changed, and you're fine. It makes no call to count the cost of following Christ. But this is exactly what Jesus said in Luke 14. He said to do what? Count the cost. 
The risen Lord Jesus told Ananias in Acts 9 to take care of the recently converted Saul, Paul. Here's what Jesus told Ananias in Acts 9, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Three times in John 21, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter said yes. And Jesus said, good, because when you're old, you will be crucified for my sake. Jesus told the rich young ruler in Luke 18 that if he wanted to follow Christ, he needed to sell everything he had and give it to the poor because the rich young ruler worshipped his wealth. And he wouldn't do it. You want to know why? Because he counted the cost of following Christ and it was too much. He wasn't willing to pay. He wasn't willing to pay the price. And by the way, the rich young ruler believed in Jesus. He treated him as Lord and Christ. Jesus said, that's not enough. You need to get rid of your idols. There's a second danger. Free grace has blurred the lines between believer and unbeliever. It's blurred the lines between believer and unbeliever. That's that's hard enough a challenge as it is without them coming in and muddying the waters even more. If in fact a true believer can live like a complete pagan for a lifetime and still be saved, then what in the world was Paul talking about when he said in Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. If you can live as a pagan and still be saved, what was John talking about when he said in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And what was Peter talking about when he said in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, meaning you don't belong here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know what that means? In the New Testament, the idea of glorifying God means you're being converted to Christ. And what Peter said, let the unbeliever see your good works so that they might be converted to Christ. It's blurred the distinction, the line between believer and unbeliever. Why did the Apostle Paul tell the Corinthians to test themselves to see if they're in the faith? 2 Corinthians 13, 5, if intellectually they believed in Jesus one time, he never would have said that, if that's the test of salvation. Why did he tell them that? He said, test test yourselves. He said that because their lives were not matching their profession. One more danger, and I take this one a little bit personally. It robs preaching of its sanctifying impact. The free grace message robs preaching of its sanctifying impact. How cruel and terrible it would be to preach. I I hope that you will follow the commands of Christ. but, But if you aren't, and if you decide to disobey in every single area of your life, and if you act like a pagan and a, and a complete lost person, just take comfort in the fact that for one second you believe that Jesus is Lord. Take comfort in that. I, I think that's cruelty. I think that's terrible. We must preach what John the Baptist preached. In Matthew 3, 7, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If easy believism is true, by the way, our own church motto doesn't even make sense. Colossians 128, 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Warning everyone of what? It's been just been robbed. The, the, the pulpit's been robbed of its power. The pulpit is meant to have power. You know why I don't like little bitty tiny pulpits made out of 17 toothpicks? Because they're powerless. A pulpit is meant to have power. Chuck Swindoll preached, quote, I hear you saying then that all you are preaching is easy believism. My answer to that is, what is hard believism? Believing isn't supposed to be hard. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I love Dr. Swindoll, but I will take the words of Jesus over his any day. And I would rather warn and warn and warn than to give you false affirmation of a salvation that I have no way of knowing is true in your life. Next time, we'll look at the scriptural foundation of a costly faith, and then we'll get into John 15 and 16. Can I tell you this? Don't don't get unsettled yet. The Christian faith is a costly faith. It'll cost you everything. And, and I, I, I am concerned by the fact that faith seems so cost-free in America. We could use a good dose of persecution. And if you read the news, it looks like it's coming. Frankly, it will purify the church. And while I cherish our freedom to worship, there's a small part of me that says a persecution will be good. It'll be good for the church. Let's get to the biblical gospel. And let's see where the free grace movement, which is based in America, by the way, goes then. Let's see where it goes. Yes, coming to faith in Christ is costly. It costs you everything. You have to be different as a husband. You have to be different as a wife. You have to be different as an employee. You have to be different in the way you talk. You have to be different in the way you think. You have to be different in the way you act. You have to be different in the way you manage your money. You have to realize, oh, it's not my money. You have to be different in the way you take care of your life. Oh, it's not my life. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, it will cost you. But it's so worth it. Isn't Christ worth the cost? The very end of these two chapters, John 15 and 16... Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And that will be the verse that we finish this series on. Because the cost is everything. But the reward is more. Amen. Our Father, we come to you now thanking you for the gospel of Christ. It is what it is. We do not get to change it we do not get to alter it according to a made-up theological system we do not drive the bible with our theology the bible must drive our theology and so lord we thank you now we thank you so much that it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves we thank you for the free gift of salvation that 
that is free to receive and yet costs everything to follow you. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here today who intellectually has believed that Jesus is the Son of God and is the Savior of the world, but has not surrendered and has not put down the torch of their own idols and has not bent the knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that this might be the day of surrender, of waving the white flag, of repenting, of coming to saving faith because of the work of the Spirit of God. And for those who are following after you now at great cost to themselves, I pray for your grace and your mercy that they would, they would rejoice, as 1 Peter 1 says, in their sufferings because it has proven their faith. And their very act of following after you does prove the reality of their faith. We thank you and we praise you for that. All for the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.